Sluts and Scholars, a podcast for professionals who prioritize pleasure. You are listening to a pleasure podcast. For more from our sex podcast collective, visit pleasurepodcasts.com. Welcome back to another season of Sluts and Scholars, the podcast for professionals who prioritize pleasure. I am so grateful for your continued listenership, or if you're a new listener, welcome. I am looking forward to sharing some new guests with you. Don't forget to rate and review wherever you listen to podcasts so we can keep this party going. Make sure you follow me on Instagram too at Sluts and Scholars because I'm going to be doing some fun giveaways to celebrate this new season that you do not want to miss. Before we get started, I wanted to share a little bit about an event I am co-hosting coming up called the Pleasure Connection Retreat, which is happening on October 14th and 15th in Malibu, California, and it's right across from the beach. This is my third time co-hosting this awesome retreat. Are you ready to make pleasure and connection a priority? Do you want to transform and elevate your sex life? The Pleasure Connection Retreat is an intimate opportunity for individuals and couples to enhance, explore, and build deeper connection with pleasure through educational teachings, somatic experiences, and interactive workshops. Go check out the pleasureconnection.eventbrite.com for more info and tickets. That's the pleasureconnection.eventbrite.com for more tickets. I am so excited to host this alongside internationally renowned yoga, meditation, and breathwork teacher and integrative behavioral therapist. She's just a multimodality healer. Lisa Ryder, aka Genius Loci. Uh, we wanted to create a safe container where learning and talking about sex is encouraged. And in our respective fields, we both see so many clients who are not having the kind of sex they want to be having and are unsure where to start. Um, we know it can be intimidating to attend an event to improve your sex life, but we really feel that pleasure is a human right. So we hope to see you there. You can check out all the info, past reviews, FAQs, and grab your tickets now at thepleasureconnection.eventbrite.com. The link will be in the episode description. Uh, Lisa and I even did a little mini episode together called The Pleasure Connection if you want to hear firsthand what this retreat can do for you. We're even offering free 30-minute discovery calls. So start your pleasure path today at thepleasureconnection.eventbrite.com. That's thepleasureconnection.eventbrite.com. Hope to see you there. Sluts and Scholars is a podcast produced by Sluts and Scholars Media, LLC. It is a shame-free educational podcast made for your entertainment and informational desires only. The podcast, any opinions we share, and any resources, including social media and emails from us, are not therapy, medical care, or professional advice, and do not create a patient-client relationship. None of the information, opinions, suggestions, resources, or exercises mentioned in this podcast should be used without clearance from your healthcare provider. All opinions, information, and ideas expressed by the guests are solely their own. If you need emergency mental health or medical help, please call 911 or 988 or go to your nearest emergency center. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Sluts and Scholars, a podcast for professionals who prioritize pleasure. Today, I am welcoming Mike Stabile. Mike is an activist, journalist, and documentary filmmaker who has written about and advocated for the rights of sex workers and sexual speech for over a decade. His firm, Polari Media, has developed press and media strategies for some of the adult industry's most well-known brands. Mike currently serves as the Director of Public Affairs at Free Speech Coalition, the trade and advocacy group for the 
adult industry. Today, we are going to talk about the Free Speech Coalition and their current work and advocacy, as well as the war on porn and legislative decisions such as the age verification mandate that impacts rights and freedoms of folks in the adult industries and how this affects the world at large. Welcome, Mike. (laughs) Thanks, Nicoletta. It's good to be here. Yay, I'm so glad to have you. And, you know, Mike and I have had the ability to do some fun projects together, uh, which is pretty cool. Um, So I'm so glad to be able to do this again with you now. Yeah, me too. Okay, so um, for folks who don't know, let's talk about FSC. Um, So what does Free Speech Coalition do and what are y'all working on now? So Free Speech Coalition has been around for about 30 years. Uh, It started out as a defense fund, right? This was, uh, if you think about the the late 80s, early 90s, there was the Reagan administration. They had a war on porn that sort of mirrors in in some ways what's going on now, at least culturally. Uh, And they used their Department of Justice to prosecute I want to say about half of the adult businesses in the country. So they would conduct raids, they would work with local vice squads, um, they would target businesses. And as, as you sort of can imagine with the federal government, when they go after you, often in multiple jurisdictions, what would happen maybe is they would order a VHS tape to some conservative county in Utah, they would uh, order another one to Alabama, and then suddenly you are, you know, you're selling adult content, you're selling VHS tapes, and suddenly you're dealing with three federal prosecutions. You go broke, right? There's, there's, a, It's a hard to defend yourself against those types of campaigns. And so what ended up happening was a lot of adult businesses were forced to settle. And, and what the Free Speech Coalition originally was, was a fund so that you weren't fighting alone, right? Because if you're fighting alone, you're losing, right? If you're trying to go up one-on-one on the federal government, you're going to lose. If you can get all of the companies together, or at least large companies together and say, hey, um, we're going to to keep each other in business while we fight these, then we can have a, a fighting chance of surviving. And I think that that, along with the, um, the Clinton administration in the early 90s, meant that uh, you know, we had a, a, a suddenly a trade organization, right? Somebody who would start thinking about what this industry looked like and also understand that we had rights. I think that a lot, and this this happens a lot today, even with sort of the greater community and the, the, the people who are in the space, is that, you know, when you've been marginalized, when you have been relentlessly attacked, you sort of end up internalizing it, right? You end up thinking like, well, this is just the way that it is. I can't do anything about it. Um, I just live in this sort of marginal space. And I think that, you know, in the early 90s, thanks to Free Speech Coalition, we started thinking about what this industry could look like. That meant that for Free Speech Coalition, it was things like the testing system that was invented, you know, for adult performers. Um, That is, you know, battling things at the legislative level, right? Uh, Primarily in California, we dealt with, you know, taxes on adult content, things that were were blatantly unconstitutional, but without somebody to defend it, without somebody to fight it, these, these sort of incursions are allowed to go. So, Free Speech Coalition is, like I said, it's been around for about 30 years. It, it really started out as a defense fund. And now um, in 2023, we're really focused on not just local issues, but national issues. So we are dealing with banking discrimination. We've been to Congress or I've been to, you know, a group of us has been to Congress uh, several times in the past year to meet with uh, House and Senate offices to talk about banking fairness and the issue that sex workers face with uh, with debanking. Uh, we're fighting age verification laws in, I think we've got lawsuits, it's hard to keep track at this point, but we've got lawsuits in Utah, 
um, Texas and Louisiana at this point. And I think that there's, mm-hmm. there's likely more to come, mm-hmm. um, you know, and uh, you're trying to make sure that, that people, and, and then also sort of fighting a cultural war. And I think that that's often what I'm most involved in is, is trying to help people understand why we're doing it. Because I think that when you look at something like age verification for adult content, a lot of people think, well, that makes sense, right? You know, kids shouldn't be able to access adult content. We, 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 you know, use IDs at a liquor store or at an adult bookstore, and we we you know keep that off. Why should the internet be any different? Mm-hmm. Um, turns out it's a lot more complicated than that, and it's not that it's not because adult companies don't want to, or it's not because adult companies want kids accessing their content, but because the solutions are not as simple as well. I'm just showing an ID. So I think a lot of what we do is talk about that, talk about the myths of sex trafficking, talk about the myths of you know porn addiction and some of the the sort of moral panic. Uh, a language that is coming up primarily of the right, but also of sort of the the, the radical feminist left, um, or what what calls themselves the radical feminist. They're actually quite conservative, um, and and to to engage a bit more. I think that again we are often on defensive. There's it's a stigmatized industry, and our conversations are really these conversations are really important to have because if we don't have those conversations, someone else defines the field. And, and those people are often sex negative and, um, you know, and, and misinformed. Well, I liked what you were saying, too, about like how on the surface and this happens for a lot of laws that go against like sex workers or the adult industry. Right. Like a lot of laws on the surface, you're like, oh, yeah, of course we should like age verify people or some, you know, past laws that we I've talked about a lot on the podcast here. Um you know, basically are like, oh, we want to reduce sex trafficking. And if you just hear sort of the 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 subtext, no, if you don't see the subtext and you just see the byline, you're like, oh yeah, of course we don't support sex trafficking. Um, but the age verification one, I'd, I'd love to break it down a little bit with you just so folks can understand. So the byline is sort of like people who are accessing adult content need to verify their age. So we know that young people aren't what? They're not seeing point, right? Adult content is adult content for a reason. It's for adults. Nobody is in, in the industry is advocating for you know, uh, children or teenagers, you know, to be able to access this content. Um, in fact, it, it's a detriment to us, not just in terms of ethics, right? People have families and, and they don't want their own kids being able to access adult content, you know, even within the industry. But it's also, um, you know, it, it, there's no benefit to us, right? Like, I think that there's an idea put forward by anti-porn groups that, that, that evil pornographers somehow want kids to, on the set. They want to get them hooked um, as if it's a drug. And that's a, a whole other issue, of course, in terms of like the medicalization and the pathology, uh, the, the pathology of pornography that, that comes out of that, uh, that sort of faith-based um, conversation. But we, there's no reason that, that, that adult sites would want kids on their sites. Right. Um, but I think that where it gets tricky um is that i mean or i guess i can go back and sort of talk about these so there in the past year in particular there have been a number of age verification laws right they've they started in louisiana and it basically said if a if a minor accesses adult content and uh that adult and and is if they're able to access adult content then the parent assumedly it could be anybody but but theoretically the parent can sue that site for damages, right? So the kid has seen adult content. There's some sort of unspecified damage. The kid, the parent, can then sue that company. Um, so that got passed in Louisiana. 
uh, it quickly got adopted in in uh, Utah, and I think that there were probably a dozen or two states that introduced similar legislation. We're now looking at about seven states that have that on the books or some sort of variation. Um, and I think that what they've said with this is that, you know, again, you flash an ID at the liquor store, you should be able to, there should be some online equivalent. And I don't think that anybody in the industry is opposed to something that would be an online equivalent of flashing an ID. Um, well, the first thing really to know is that these laws are not, they're disingenuous, right? So they're, they're passed in this way to make it seem like, okay, we're just protecting kids. Um, in reality, the people who are pushing these laws are anti-LGBTQ, they're anti-trans, they're anti-porn in general, right? So what they've said, um, because I spent a lot of time in the fever swamps, and I spent a lot of time in conversation, unfortunately, with them, mm-hmm. is that we want to ban porn. We want to ban porn. It should be criminalized. There was a, a, a there was a document that was released yesterday. It was sort of publicized yesterday mm. from sort of the fifty of the leading conservative groups. One of their their um, the, their paragraphs was basically like, "We think that porn should be outlawed. We think that people that sell or distribute it should be criminalized. We think that um, ISPs, you know, the the internet networks that that." do it that allow it should be shuttered right so this is their end goal but what they understand is that if we can start with this age verification this is sort of the 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 way in right this is sort of the trojan horse so when you're talking about um age verification the second thing to know is when they define pornography it's defined incredibly broadly so they don't use the word pornography which is not necessarily a legal term they use the term material harmful to minors and Mm -hmm. within that Obviously, sexually explicit media is there, but also um, as little as the description, right? A, a, a written description about the nipple of a female breast. So you're starting, they're passing these laws saying we're going after porn, we're going to age verify porn. We're going to make sure people can't access this content. But when we define the content, it's actually you it, it could be a written description of a nipple. So right? could they could they define it as just like sex education? Content? I mean, that's essentially it, right? Yeah. Because, like, what you see, I mean, conversely from these, or, you know, simultaneously from these same people are um, an attempt to expand the definition of pornography, right? To include anything that is LGBTQ, anything that is sex ed, specifically anything that's related to uh, trans identity, you know, and, and trans lives. Mm-hmm. So all of these things you know, what you see is they define all these as inherently sexual, right? As inherently sexually explicit. If you look at the book school bans, right? If you look at the campaign, the the campaigns against drag, what they're saying is this is sexually explicit content, right? So I think that when you're looking at age verification, what they're looking at is not, hey, can we separate out porn, right? Can we, we find a protection for porn? What they're looking at is, is there a way to strip the internet of any mention of LGBTQ lives, of sex ed, of reproductive rights, of all of these things that we are simultaneously defined as sexually explicit or harmful to minors. Well, yeah, and, th- and then you have politicians who are the ones making the decision of what identities are fetishized and eroticized uh, for just existing, that now they're just existing, they are sexual content. And yes. we see this in terms of like, who gets banned and shadow banned more on social media and things like that. Yes. And that's, that's that is part of the campaign. So I think that like it, they, they come up with these common sense, what seem like common sense laws. And then 
when you actually look at the detail, what they've done is they've defined it incredibly broadly. They've made different ways of going after it. In our litigation in Utah and Louisiana, one of the sites that we're working with is, is O-School, which is a sex ed site. And for them, they don't know. They, they look at this and they're like, we think that we might be affected by this. We think that we would fall under this description, mm-hmm. right? We're talking about, you know, first time sexual activity. We're talking about sexual identity. Um, we're talking about things that, um, you know, are, you know, might be helpful for a 16 year old or 17 year old, but would not be appropriate for a nine year old. And that's probably the third point. When they define minors, minors is anyone on the spectrum of, uh, you know, a three-year-old or a 17, you know, year old with 364 days, right? Like it is, there's different stuff that is appropriate. And I think that um, what the anti-porn groups and the anti-LGBT groups are trying to do is sort of try to make an, a, a, an internet that is again, sort of dumbed down, right? That is safe for a nine-year-old. Um, and that has real effects on adults, right? That has real effects on um, you know, our ability to access information. And I think that one of the principles of the Constitution is that you can't dumb this down, right? That, that this is legal content, whether you're talking about adult content or whether you're talking about sex ed, um, this is protected by the First Amendment. We do not, you know, our entire society cannot be censored for the benefit of a nine-year-old. There are ways in which you can protect your kids from accessing adult content. You know, there, there are methods you can take and, and we can talk about those, but but the adults have rights too. adults have rights to access this content. The government cannot set up a border, um, you know, by which it, they make it, you know, unreasonably difficult for you to access this content. And I think that when we talk about, again, to go back to that, well, just flash an ID, flash an ID is really easy, right? If you go, if I go into a bookstore or if I, uh, you know, and, and want to buy, you know, a magazine, I can flash my ID the clerk looks at it, sees that I'm over 18, sells me the magazine. Um, they do not write down my name in a book. Yes, I was going to say, how are they storing information they're when you enter your stuff? Yeah, they're not storing anything. They're not paying the government database to make sure that I am over 18. They are not... Um, it doesn't cost anything for the store to do that, right? It's, it's sort of part of the process. And... It's instantaneous. It doesn't take any time. Now, if you look at if there was something that was available for that for the Internet, I think that that you would see adult sites, you know, adopt it. Right. It, like I said, it's, it's, it's in their interest to actually minimize the number of non-consumers on their sites, you know, particularly minors. Minors are not consumers. So it actually is a drain on resources to have people on your site who are not able to buy or not actual consumers aside from the ethical concerns you don't want them on there so the you know if there was a way to sort of say hey listen we want to get anybody who is not actually going to be a consumer who's not going to uh, purchase we would do it right it, 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 it's in our financial interest to keep minors off of these sites what these what the the technology is though is much different so if you go through i've, I've gone through the process of verifying with with some of these companies, what happened, and, and I'm somebody, remember, who doesn't have any concerns about my name or identity being linked to adult content. I work on it all the time. I talk about porn all the time. I'm not going to lose my job. I'm not going to You're like, lose- I'm already on a bunch of lists. I'm already on a bunch of lists. Okay, there's, there's nobody, like, I have no, I'm not a school teacher. I'm not a pastor. I am not a politician. I'm not a government employee. Um, 
if you want to, you know, I'm not necessarily wanting to publish my entire browser history because private things are private. <laughs> but, you know, it's also something that the very nature of me going to an adult site is not a scandal. So when I, you know, when I go to verify myself with the, um, the through the process, I'm already doing something that most people won't do. Right. Most people have real concerns about being linked to adult content. There's a lot of stigma. People lose their jobs. Um, they, you know, it can break up their marriages. It can affect custody. Right. This is stuff that can be used in court against them. Um, people have real hesitation and they don't want their IDs. You know, they don't want surveillance from the government. They don't want to risk hacking. They don't want any of these things. So what we've seen with these laws when they've been passed is that, you know, in some cases, 95 percent of the traffic drops off because they just won't go through that verification process, right? They're going to go someplace else. They're going to go to a social media site, which are not affected by these laws, at least theoretically. They're going to go to an overseas site that is not compliant. Um, they might go to an illegal site or a pirate site to access that content. Um, so, you know, but when I go actually go through that verification process, what happens is um, it takes a long time. So I've got a, you know, I've got a decent monitor. I've got decent lighting. I've got IDs. I'm sitting at my desk. Um, takes me 10 minutes to go through, right? To upload that ID. It doesn't work the first time. It has to match your facial record, you know, facial structure. Oh, it, it didn't work. The lighting, move your head into the like circle. There's like lots. Of, it's complicated. Yeah, you're just trying to come and you're, it's like 10 <laughs> minutes of like, the foreplay yeah. that you didn't ask for. Exactly. And I, again, I'm doing it my best. Most people are looking at this on their phone in the bathroom or under the covers, right? Like this is not, um, and, and, and asking someone to whip out an ID and do all of this stuff when they could just go to a, a you know, an illegal site is what they're going to do, right? They're going to sort of jump off. And I think that, again, if it were instantaneous, if we could do it, there was no data held and people could be reasonably assured of their privacy, I think that most people would do it. But this is not it. And I think that as we saw with reproductive rights, what the what the right wants to do in particular, um, though, as I said, it's not entirely the right, but what the right wants to do is make it as difficult as possible for you to access this so that you don't do it. And I think that that's, that's behind all of this. Like that when they say, well, it's age verification for children. Yes, but you have to verify everybody. Right. Um, it's not we're just verifying people who are, you know, 18, 19, 20. It's not that we're not being selective about this. We're asking for sort of mass surveillance. And I think that that's what a lot of people are concerned with. And that's why a lot of people won't do it. And that's why the industry is sort of is fighting this, because this isn't about protecting kids. This is about making it as difficult as possible for legal adults to access adult content in their own home. Well, and I'm not saying that we should advocate for nine-year-olds watching adult content. And as you were just describing, we know that like young people find a way, right? It, even if there are these rules and things, people find pirated sites, people find other ways in. Um, it, it's always going to be out there. There's always going to be like a, a workaround for a lot of people. And so to me, this is just kind of reflective of the war on porn in general, where like porn is seen as the scapegoat, as this dangerous thing for young people, as opposed to how about we have comprehensive sex education that teaches about porn and digital content and puts it into a context so that if and when young people come across it, which they inevitably will in some way, shape or form, um, then there can actually be dialogue and conversations to not just shield children, but to give them ways to think critically um, about what they're doing so they can learn to protect themselves as well. And so again, this isn't advocating for young people to watch adult content, but like 
they're going to find a way. They've always found a way. Um, and so that to me is, is, is scarier because then it's just like, again, an excuse to not educate young people in a comprehensive way. Yeah. And I think the same people who are fighting this are also fighting uh, for comprehensive, fighting against comprehensive sex ed. Right. I think that um, this is, again, part of a conservative faith based project by and large. Right. That that this that that public discussions of sexuality, that public discussions of sex in the 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 in the public square are really offensive to them. They like it, it's something that should only be discussed at home, should only be discussed quietly, if at all, right? That, that, that they don't, um, if you think about sort of the, the type of sex ed that, you know, people got in the 30s or 40s or 50s, it was, you know, whispers, right? It was, it was, it was just sort of allusions to the fact that like, this is what your wedding night's gonna be like and we're, we're not gonna talk about it. And that enables abuse, right? That enables, um, you know, assault, that enables, it, it, when, when you're not able to talk about sex publicly, it, it sort of enables the predators, right? And I think that one of the concerns that we have with the legislation, the way that it's written, is, is it pushes people, um, you know, including minors, to sites that are illegal, right? That don't, um, if you look at sort of the, the major adult sites that, you know, often get framed in the press, they are the verifying ID of creators, right? People who are uploading content are, are being verified to make sure that they're they're in it. They're taking down content that is revenge porn or CSAM, um, you know, or illegal content um, or violent content, right? They're removing illegal content. And they're making sure that, you know, people are not, um, you know, they're working with, you know, with, with databases to report when this sort of stuff happens so that law enforcement can go after it. Um, mm -hmm. You know, if there is a site, you know, if those sites are all under, you know, if, if they're either blocking um, states, as, as many are, because they don't uh, they don't believe they can accurately protect privacy, mm -hmm. um, given the, the legislation. What that does is it pushes people to these illegal sites and those illegal sites have all sorts of terrible conduct. Right. They're going to have CSAM, right, child sex abuse material. They're going to have revenge porn. They're going to have predators who are in their chat rooms and, and talking. And these are sites that are coming out of Russia. They're coming out of Hong Kong. They're coming out of India. They're coming out of, you know, in some cases, the Netherlands. Right. Um, places that don't patrol uh patrol this. And it actually puts people in more danger. So I think that there are ways that, you know, obviously we should be talking with kids about, um, about sex and about adult, you know, about, um, you know, giving them context for what they might stumble upon, you know, or what they, they might see. Uh, but I think that that is, sex education is really frightening to, uh, to most people. And I don't know if we have numbers on it, but, um, oh gosh, the name of the, the law just kind of slipped my mind, but the one from several years ago that was against sex trafficking. Um, and it was basically kind of had a, a similar thing, right? Where there's this byline of like, we're trying to fight against sex trafficking. Can you remind me what was the... Foster-Sesta. Yes, Foster-Sesta. Thank you so much. Um, which I've talked a lot about on the, on the show. And so with something like that, I don't know if we have like numbers or research that shows, and if we do, I'd love to, to hear from you, but... Um, at least looking at some of the data and numbers we have, you know, it was supposed to reduce sex trafficking, but what it did is it said it inadvertently pushed sex work and other things more into the shadows, making it both more dangerous for, um, you know, consensual sex workers and people doing that to come forward and to, to do their job, um, making it maybe less safe uh, to come forward and, and talk about trafficking. So we, we do see this, um, this backfire effect yeah. with certain laws like this. And, and it's, been shown already. I, I don't know if there's numbers to 
Um, yeah. Yeah, there are. I mean, there are certainly numbers in terms of FOSTA-SESTA, right, in terms of the number of people that it put into more risky situations, right? If people are able to advertise online, they are able to screen, right? They are able to work independently. Um, once you, once you, as you criminalize uh, sex work, right, it means that you have to have more people um, as middlemen, right, as, as people who are, you know, quote unquote, protecting you. And those people have then control gives them access to more control over you and possible exploitation. And one of the things, one of the reasons that we've been fighting uh, against banking discrimination in uh, so, so heavily is that um, when you can't control your income, (laughs) someone else has to, right? So if you think about like, I mean, if you go back to like the high credit card fees that, that are charged for online uh, sales, right? They're disproportionate. They are discriminatory and predatory, right? Credit cards charge, credit card networks charge, you know, as, as much as 10% or more, uh, you know, per transaction for adult. That is, you know, four or five times what they charge for a normal transaction. That comes out of adult creators' incomes, right? And it means that they also can't sell, uh, most credit card companies and, and payment processors don't want to work with adults. So that means that Creators, rather than being able to sell directly to a fan, have to go through a platform. And that platform is going to take a cut. Um, You know, if you don't have access, if you can't have banking access, whether you're an online sex worker or, uh, you know, doing in-person work, um, what happens is is you lose – you have to hand over your money to somebody else. So one of the, the the creators that we went to DC with talked about how she's lost upwards of 30 accounts. She's had them shut down. You know, she's not even doing, she's doing basically glamour shots and, and, you know, selling socks and things online. It's, it's very sort of, I don't want to say vanilla, but it's, it's not, you know, the, the extreme gangbangs and, and things that, that people would be like, well, you know, that banks might not work with that. You know, she doesn't have access to that. When she had to go buy a house, what happened was she couldn't get a mortgage in her name. The bank wouldn't give her a loan, even though it was her money. That meant that it had to go in her husband's name. Um, so even though she was making the payments, even the money was coming from her, it was in her husband's name. It was building her husband's credit. And then when they got divorced, he's got everything in his name, right? Um, you know, similarly, if you're, you're doing, say, you're doing in-person work, right? You're getting cash. You can't access a bank. So you have to give it to somebody else. And maybe that is a friend. Maybe that is a partner. Maybe that's somebody who's going to, you know, exploit you, right? You get in a fight. They have access to your bank. You've got no rights to that money. That allows them to say, hell, listen, you should probably do this or else I'm not going to give you this. And that's what FOSTA SESTA did. It made it more dangerous. It pushed people into in-person work, which meant that they had more middlemen, people who were taking a cut or were in a position to exploit them. That's what we see with banking discrimination more broadly, right? It means that there's got to be a whole host of people who are looking to take a cut of your income. And if you don't do what they say, it can make it more difficult. And I think that for the the anti-porn, anti-sex work groups, this actually feeds into their ultimate goal because they want this work to be as dangerous as possible. They don't want people doing it. And so it makes it, you know, if if people are selling content on OnlyFans and making a hundred thousand dollars a year or a million dollars a year, that goes against their whole message, right? They're like, oh, these people are being exploited. They came to it and you're like, well, no, I'm doing this. I'm making Yeah, they're independent. They have a house. They own their own house. They have all these things. Yes. But if they can destabilize that, then they can go back to, aha, these people are being exploited. Aha, their lives are miserable. Aha, we have to 
crack down. We have to do something about it. So I think that it is, um, you know, it's part of a larger project. They're not doing this for sex workers. They are doing this because they don't want sex work to exist. I mean, you talked about kind of the war on porn that we were seeing 40 plus years ago, right? And is that the amount of time? Reagan times. Um, And how there's, you know, similarities happening now. Like, what are some of the similarities you're seeing? And like, why have we, why was there maybe some things that we're doing better? And now we've kind of seen a, a repeat of history. Yeah. I mean, there's, I think that there is always an undercurrent especially on the right, around, um, you know, pornography, right, and, and, and sexuality and, and sex ed. This is not a new thing. It's sort of been a through line, um, you know, and, and especially in the last 40 years, right, that was something that was happening in the Reagan administration. They were trying to cut down on education about AIDS and HIV, right? They, they wanted to sort of censor any discussion about it, if they wanted to talk about it at all, because they believed that it meant that people were going to go in and have gay sex, and they thought that was a problem. So it wasn't about protecting, you know, people who, who were having, you know, men who were having sex with men, it, uh, or sex workers, or, or um, you know, addicts, or whoever else. It was about stopping it, right? They thought that, that this was sort of, you know, a curse by God, and, you know, as the government, we have to, to sort of enforce it. Um, so this has sort of been a through line. But what, what happened in the 80s and, and the early 90s and what is happening again today is there an alliance with an anti-porn feminist. Again, they would say left. Um, you know, I would probably dispute that. I think that it's a more conservative impulse. But when those two forces come together, it's almost like a hurricane, right? Like it's almost like they, they feed on each other. They're able to sort of make arguments that this is bipartisan. They're both opposed to sex work. Um, and it really sort of advances uh, their cause, you know, quite a bit more. Um, it's not something that is sustainable long. It's a it's a very hostile marriage, right? To have somebody on, uh, you know, the social fe- socialist feminist left um, with an evangelical, um, you know, uh, traditional feminist or a, a trad femme right. But um, it can do a lot of damage. And I think that they, these happen around moments of moral panic. Uh, so if you look at like the late 80s and early 90s, right, you have an epidemic, right, in, around, around HIV. You have an explosion also around a new technology, which is VHS, right? So previously, when you looked at porn, you had to go to a movie theater or you had to buy a, you know, an eight millimeter. You sort of watched it in your garage. Um, with the, the advent of the um, of VHS in the 80s, suddenly it was available in everybody's homes. Mm-hmm. And, I, and, and that sort of makes people really nervous. And I think that one of the things that we saw in the past 10 years, right, and in, in the past uh, 20 years is that, um, you know, with the rise of, you know, content online, this has been slowly building. If you look at the conservatives, um, what they have been, you know, for a while, they were really lost in the wilderness because I think if you looked at the press and you looked at the conversation, there was a general idea that like porn was fine, right? There wasn't a big deal. This was, the, you know, it's it's natural. It's it's you know, people are talking about sex. It's actually positive. We're talking about our fetishes. We're talking about um, our sexuality. This is all a net positive, at least in the mainstream media. Um, and that I think was really disturbing to me. I think that was disturbing that you might have you know not just Cosmopolitan magazine, but you know, Business Insider and PC Mag and, and, you know, Computer World talking about, oh, Pornhub's got, you know, their top 
100 list and anal is again, it's like, these are things that were, you know, being discussed in, in mainstream publications. And I think that that really made them nervous. Um, but I think that what really changed things for them was the rise of the, the creator sites and, and the fan base sites. So I think that, you know, the only fans, the fan centros, the just for fans, um, that explosion that happened over COVID um, really made them nervous because it became, it wasn't just my, you know, college student might be watching porn. It was, they might be a porn star. Porn stars before were a fictional character for most people, right? It was, it was like, it was like being like, oh, my kid's an alien, right? Like nobody really thought that this was likely to happen, but suddenly you're, you know, COVID happens and you hear about nurses, you hear about college students, you, you know, you hear about journalists who are saying, you know what, I'm making extra money. They live right next door. Right next door. It could be something. And I think that there was something also around the, the, um, around the pandemic where there was an anxiety about not just what's happening next door, but what's happening in your, your kid's bedroom, right? A lot of college students come home, you know, or, or, or people 18, 19, they're living, you know, uh, you know, with their parents because they don't have a job because the pandemic has shut everything down. Your your partner is in their bedroom, you know, is in the bathroom with the door closed. Um, you know, there's and, and at the same time, there's all this conversation about porn is skyrocketing. People are watching all of these sites. Public health departments are saying you should watch porn instead of going out. I think there was just a lot of concern about there was a lot of conversation about porn and a lot of curiosity about what are they doing over there and and is my you know could my kid become you know, an OnlyFans star, right? Could they be do this? And I think that that really struck a nerve. Like I've, I've actually looked at the, 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 the campaigns against Pornhub and the campaigns around anti-porn and they really spike during the pandemic. That's really when they take off. And I think that a lot of it has to do with just that anxiety that it's no longer something that happens out there. It's something that might be happening in my home. Um, and that makes a, a lot of people primed for, again, a, a, to, to join into a moral panic. So let's say folks are listening and they're wondering, like, OK, some of this stuff is maybe going on in my in my space. Like, how can FSC help now? And what are some of the most common reasons you see people were, uh, reaching out now? I mean, I think you mentioned, you know, the banking, the deplatforming. Yeah, I mean, I think that for us, I think that, you know, we represent, we've long represented adult businesses and creators. The majority of our members at this point are creators. Um, you know, and, and one of the things that, that you know, people reach out and they say, you know, I'm scared. I don't know what this is, you know, and that might be because I've lost my bank and now I can't pay rent, you know, where I've lost my bank and I can't pay payroll or I can't pay my mortgage. Um, you know, I think that that has got a lot of people invested because, it used to be that there were, you know, 2,000 or so people in the San Fernando Valley in Los Angeles who were working in this industry. Um, so things were were fairly limited. It was a fairly small community. With yeah. the rise of fan sites and clip sites, what happened is, is that everybody was involved. And now somebody who's selling feet pics in Ohio, um, you know, to make extra money is suddenly seeing their bank account shut down, right? Or they're losing their PayPal. So I think that it's activated a lot of people. And I think that a lot of the things that that people reach out about are one, what do I do? How do I solve this very specific problem? And then also how do I get involved? What do I need to do? I think that, that people who work in our industry understand the hypocrisy that's coming from the anti-porn forces, right? And the anti-sex work forces, they understand that these people are painting this picture of what sex work is or what porn is that doesn't match 
anything of their lived experience, right? They're, and I think that it makes them angry. Um, but I think that we have a lot of people who think, well, I can't do anything or what can I do? Or like, well, this is just the way that it is. And I think that what FSC is trying to do um, right now is to help people feel powerful, right? And to be able to say, hey, listen, you know, you may have a sense of that this is wrong, but not be able to articulate why, Um, you know, this is what you can do. And I think that one of the things that I try to communicate to people is that we have, um, we're a much bigger uh, community uh, than the other side is, right? Not only do we have, you know, I think that the the most recent estimate was around 3 million adult creators uh, globally, Uh, but not only do we have a, a, a huge audience don't have a huge community we have a huge audience and that's something that we can start talking about so when these bills started getting passed in uh utah and louisiana and uh alabama or arkansas and mississippi and and these places in texas um what fsc did was we quickly put up websites right to to be able to say hey listen because a lot of companies were wanting to block traffic that was coming from those states because they didn't want the liability that came with it so people would reroute their traffic to our site uh, or to our you know a a lander that we created that allowed people to find out about the law why that was being blocked and then to write their legislators right And, and to be able to speak up and say hey listen this is wrong. I oppose this. I'm a voter. Um, and I think that activating not just the creator base, but the, the audience is going to be a huge part of this. People don't want to upload their ID. I think that, that, again, they understand what this is, what this really is. So, um, you know, I, I, I'm not to say that we don't have our we have our work cut out for us, but I do think that there's tremendous potential there. And I think that, that people are really activated and excited. Well, and I hope that people who are watching this content um, and using this content personally do feel, you know, brave enough to, I guess, take the step to to send messages and things to their legislators. Because as we're talking about, there is shame and stigma and fear of like what's going to happen with that and information and people will know. Um, and so while we have, while there is a huge um, audience, right, that is uh, using this type of content and watching this type of content, um, there's a fear that they won't feel safe to rally, which sure. is disappointing and scary. Um, yeah, I also wonder, like, for folks who might be listening, that obviously I s- care about adult entertainment and sex worker rights. Um, and for someone listening who maybe is like doesn't, um, what is the impact that we see about this on like the layperson, right? Because we are talking about like rights and free speech and other things like that. So if you're like, I don't care about sex worker rights for some mm-hmm. reason, um, where could this go? Or like, what's the the fear of like? how this could affect our world at large. I mean, I think that what, you know, I say to people who are, you know, maybe on the right and, and could care less you know, about marginalized communities or if I, you know, the, about sex workers or, or anything like that is that one, um, you know, the right does care at least theoretically about sex trafficking, right? That is a big concern for them to be able to say, you may not like sex work. You may be morally opposed to it, but this is actually making trafficking worse, right? We should be fighting for their rights, right? Because then they can speak up. Then they have a forum to redress grievances where they can complain about, hey, I suffered abuse or this person attacked me or this person's exploiting me, right? You want a system where they can come forward in that if you want to avoid trafficking. So if you really care about fighting trafficking, it's not 
shutting down sex work. It's giving sex workers more rights. Uh, it's, it's, it's moving away from criminality. And that's ultimately how we're going to stop sex trafficking. But beyond that, I think that, you know, the right is also concerned about First Amendment concerns. Um, you know, I, I, I think that, or at least the sector of it is, right, that this is free speech, that we don't want the government telling us what we can or can't access. And that, you know, pornography is you know, a really convenient Trojan horse because very few people, especially in the legislature, are going to come forward to defend it. We saw that with the, the legislation. There were people who were opposed to it who said, you know what, I can't vote against this because of how it it's looks. Come up in a, it, it's going to come up in an ad against me, right? So I think that what, um, you know, this is a crack in the door wherein the government can start saying this material, to access this material, you need to be surveilled. Right. We need to be able to track who's going through and accessing this. We need you to upload your ID. Um, it needs to be riskier for you to do this. If you were looking, for instance, if you were thinking about political content, right, that the government might declare as you know harmful to minors. Or we want to keep this away from people or whatever. Um, I don't want the government setting, you know, being like, you need to show your ID and register with this database in order to access these ideas. We think these ideas are too risky. Um, that's a recipe for authoritarianism, right? That's a recipe for censorship. So even if you don't like adult content, even if you think that it's, that it's morally repugnant and you wish that it were banned, I think there are reasons to say, you know what, this is not a power we should give the government. <laughs> they shouldn't have the ability to say this type of content is legal, and this kind of or this type of content is accessible and this type of content we're need, we need to approve you before you're able to access it. Mm, yeah. Oh, well, I know there's like so much more we could talk about and I like so value you taking the time to to be here and, and sharing the work that you do. Um, I know it's been uh, up on the screen if you're watching, but for listeners, um, how can people um, follow what you're doing and get in touch with the Free Speech Coalition and support the cause? So I am, you know, I am tweeting constantly, unfortunately, um, <laughs> at Mike Stabile uh, on Twitter. Uh, FSC Army's account is at FSC Army. Uh, and that is, you know, that communicates a lot of about what we're doing and a lot of the resources that we put out, um, you know, including sort of registering if you have issues with your bank so that, you know, we can follow up, right, that we can sort of help report it. Um and, and obviously, you know, freespeechcoalition.com has those resources as well. Please contact us. I think that what I, you know, for people who are creators, one thing that I would recommend is that you join freespeechcoalition.com. Um, it's, you know, it, the the lowest, you know, the intro rate is, is sort of $10 a month. And a lot of platforms are, you know, just for fans just announced that for uh, creators who are um, members of Free Speech Coalition, they'll get sort of access to additional uh, resources on the Just for Fan site. Um, they are actually a co-plaintiff in uh, at least two of our suits. Um, and you know, but but again, for ten dollars a month, not only do you help support the work that we're doing, right? We're we're filing lawsuits in all of these states. We're arguing constantly. We're we're meeting with Congress around banking legislation, right? This is an investment in your uh, in your business and in your future. Um, but it also means that we're in better contact with you. And I, I can't stress enough how helpful it is when we go into a congressional briefing or when we go into a meeting with a bank regulator to be able to say, this happened to this people or this happened to this many people. Um, it's incredibly powerful. You know, we are able to sort of understand what your story is. We're able to relay that story and we're able to make change on a global level. And that is, um, you know, even if you 
can't afford to join FSD, I recommend you know being in contact with us. Uh, we, we obviously we are <laughs> to our detriment don't have a ton of services that are exclusive to members. We're always sort of willing to help anybody, but. Um, you know, being a member means that, again, you're supporting that information. And then also we've got more of a direct line with you. And it, it means that we are in a little bit better contact um, and in terms of relaying your story. So join, yeah, join FSC, freespeechcoalition.com. Uh, well, thank you so much, Mike. And, um, you know, this isn't just affecting people who are kind of directly in the uh, sex work space, like it's also affecting educators and therapists and people in healthcare things too, who who talk about sexual health and wellness. Um, so they're they're coming for a lot of us. Um, yeah, yeah. So if you want to follow what I'm doing, again, I'm on Instagram at Sluts and Scholars on Twitter. Uh, I don't post nearly as much as you um, at Sluts Scholars. Uh, you can listen anywhere you get your podcasts. Um, please don't forget to rate and review and check out those advertiser discounts. Thank you so much, Mike. Right, Sluts and Scholars, a podcast for professionals who prioritize pleasure. Sluts and Scholars is a podcast produced by Sluts and Scholars Media, LLC. It is a shame-free educational podcast made for your entertainment and informational desires only. The podcast, any opinions we share, and any resources, including social media and emails from us, are not therapy, medical care, or professional advice, and do not create a patient-client relationship. None of the information, opinions, suggestions, resources, or exercises mentioned in this podcast should be used without clearance from your healthcare provider. All opinions, information, and ideas expressed by the guests are solely their own. If you need emergency mental health or medical help, please call 911 or 988 or go to your nearest emergency center. We hope you enjoy the show.